Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... I'm a bit happy, you know, that our mob are going maybe to get something out of this. And let's still be mindful that our people have set up a lot of businesses and they are, are thriving in their business. The Western Australian government will pay up to $180 million to settle a three-year class action over the stolen wages of thousands of Aboriginal people. Also... And it's part of uh, a thawing of bilateral relations between Australia and China. The Albanese government recognises the importance of China as a regional actor. Anthony Albanese has arrived in Shanghai, the first Australian Prime Minister to make an official visit to China in seven years. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, Palestinian human rights groups launch a historic legal bid to determine whether Australian arms exports are supporting Israeli forces in attacks on the Gaza Strip. Last week, it was revealed that Australia had approved 322 defence exports to Israel over the past six years with 49 permits last year and 23 in the first three months of this year. The first challenge of its kind, the groups are seeking to compel the release of the permit documents from the Office of Defence Minister Richard Marles through the Federal Court of Australia. I spoke to Rowana Ruff, Principal Lawyer and Executive Director at the Australian Centre for International Justice, to learn more. The information currently available obviously doesn't outline anything specific of what's being exported, but are there specific exports or is there a specific time frame that's being focused on? Specifically um, requested for permits uh, since 7th of October, since the Hamas attacks against um Israel on that day. We know that in the last six years there have been at least 322 arms export permits that have been issued in relation to Israel. Now they do concern both military specific goods and components and also dual use goods. Uh, So we don't know for sure what they entail and this is part of the reason why my clients want to understand what it is that Australia is sending, who is sending it and what are And what is the material itself so that they can better understand and know whether or not they have a right to seek judicial review of those decisions. But our problem is that this process is shrouded in secrecy. We just don't know what it is that Australia is sending. And this has been a problem across many different conflict areas and um, conflicts where belligerents are are engaged and Australia is sending material to um, to those belligerents. So, for example... There was concern over a number of years by different civil society actors of exports being sent to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for use in um, the brutal war in Yemen there and and the devastating effect it had against civilians there. And uh, we were met with luck from the government. We just don't know what is being sent. Um, Freedom of information requests often come back um, redacted or all we will be given is a number. So in Australia, we're completely in the dark in this respect. Is there a difference between filing something under freedom of information and taking it to the federal court for a preliminary decision? There is something very different. I mean, um, engaging in legal action is not a dif- is a difficult process um, and it's a difficult decision to make for my clients. 
Um, and, and, you know, we have not taken this decision lightly. This decision is made on a serious basis. Um, we undertake risks in, in, in um, uh, taking on this action. Um, and we know that a freedom of information request is not going to get us much. Um, certainly those permits or how those assessments are being made, which is very crucial for us to understand if we have um, a right to seek judicial review and uh, determine it, how it is that those assessments have been made and what information was being used uh, um, in order to make those assessments. Because we would say that uh, any assessments made to send material that could be being used against the Palestinian people in Gaza or throughout the West Bank uh, would be in breach of international law and Australia's legal obligations. To respect and ensure respect for the Geneva Convention, um, international humanitarian law, and we know that Israel is flouting them on a, on a daily basis and has been for decades. They've got obligations under the Genocide Convention, obligations under the Arms Trade Treaty. So Australia is a state party, and it's under the relevant implementing legislation, you could say, that the Minister for Defence um, must assess any relevant human rights risks um, and Australia's compliance with these international legal obligations in order to permit an export from uh, to be sent. And so the Department of Defence has publicly commented, I think it was in Senate estimates or at least in response to media of the last several weeks, that um, if an export might be used to facilitate human rights abuses, then a permit would be refused. And this is a this is you know a welcome statement, a significant statement. But how can we know? We simply don't know if this is actually the case in in each case. We don't know how assessments are being made and what information they're using in order to make those assessments. Will they will they be obligated to hand that information over under the the preliminary decision, or is this something that can kind of go back and forth? Well, that's a matter for the court to decide. Of course, we would engage. We would hope to engage. Uh, with the department as we have before we launch legal action. But if the court made a decision as to uh, to compel the Minister of Defence to provide that information that we're seeking those export permits, if they do exist, um, then they would be compelled to provide that information and our clients would assess whether or not they, can, uh, they would like to take the matter further um, and uh, seek judicial review of any decisions made that we believe would are in non-compliance with Australia's international legal obligations. And and we just don't understand how the Australian government and successive Australian governments think that um, these defence cooperation agreements uh, are consistent with um, with human rights and Australia's international legal obligations. So if the court does grant access to the arms exports permits and the organisations do decide to seek judicial review... What would the outcome of that be or what would the ideal outcome be? So we would seek the court's review uh, of any assessments that have been made in relation to the permits, um, any permits that have been issued. Um, And um, essentially, uh, my clients would seek for the government to suspend um, uh, arms exports. So we would say that it should, that any future exports uh, should be refused. And I think it just... um, puts the government on notice when looking at permits that come to their desk that they must be undertaking these assessments correctly. That was Rowan Raff, Principal Lawyer and Executive Director at the Australian Centre for International Justice, ending the report. Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire, 
daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. After three years of negotiations, applicants in a stolen wages class action in Western Australia say they're glad the matter has reached settlement. Last week, the state government committed to paying up to $180 million in compensation for more than 14,000 Aboriginal workers who had wages stolen between 1936 and 1972. The WISE contributor from NADA Media, Gerard Mazza, spoke with Baladong Noongar man and applicant Desmond Blurton on the issue's significance for First Nations people. I'm an applicant who's, who's helping the, you know, the Shine Wars to, to gather information about my old people and what they did when they were subjected to you know, slave labour in the early colonial days when they um, was using... Uh, our people for cheap, cheap labour, and usually some of it was slave labour as well. And how did it feel when you heard the news that the settlement had come through? I'm, I'm, I'm a bit happy, you know, that our mob are going maybe to get something out of this. And but let's let's still be mindful that our people have set up a lot of businesses such as pastoralism and that, and they are, are thriving in their in their business, you know, and, and there's only our people's wages. The business still need to pay. The pastoral business is a billion-dollar industry, and, and there's a lot of industries that have thrived on this land. So there is maybe speculation that maybe the business as well need to start paying our Aboriginal people. The Premier, Roger Cook, said that the settlement hopefully be able to lead to healing some of the injustices of the past. Do you think this is a step towards healing some of those injustices? It's a step, you know, in towards of in towards our old people are the main people for this. Our elders who have suffered, who have come from that era, these are the people that need healing, and it's good that our families as well, the generations down. Can, can get some healing as well from our people who have been subjected to uh, hard labour. Um, this is a good step, but there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go into helping heal our people. And, and it's a good gesture in, in towards a step into something that may help our people. And I hope that our elders get it first they should be first to be getting it because they are the ones who have suffered and they've seen that from the colonial era. Um, and, you know, the, this uh, government is only um, going up to, is it 1936 to 1972? They could at least put it back a little bit more further because our people have been enslaved a lot longer than that because this WA government has left shackles and neck chains on our people for an extra 50 years in our West Australian state. Other other states, they, they let them off. They let the neck and chain shackles off. But over here in Western Australia, they kept it on us for another 50 years continually. Moving to another topic, have you been attending any of the rallies for Palestine? Yes, uh, we have. Me and uh, Seamus Doherty my fellow uh, comrade in Destin Custody Watch Committee, we have been attending rallies over here. 
Do you see connections between what's happened here in this continent and what's happening in Gaza at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, the, the mob over there, Palestine, they, they deserve to live. They are humans on their own land, on their own tribal lands. They deserve that. Their kids deserve it. Just like us here on our tribal lands. We deserve to live on our tribal <laughs> lands. We are humans. We are humans and we deserve to live here in peace and harmony for our future, for our children and in solidarity with Palestine over there, from our Buja to over there, river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Baladong Noongar man Desmond Blurton there speaking with Nada Media's Gerard Mazar. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Armadale on Tune FM, to our listeners on 8CCC in Alice Springs and to the other side of the country on KCR in Kalamunda, Western Australia. Anthony Albanese has arrived in Shanghai, the first Australian Prime Minister to visit China in seven years. The trip is said to be crucial in order to rekindle the diplomatic relationship between the two after a long period of instability. I spoke to Dr Beck Striding, Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations and Director of La Trobe Asia, to find out more. I just wanted to start with a little bit of context, so maybe... You know, why now? It's been so long, 2016, since the last time the, the leaders from Australia and China have met. Is, is there a reason why it hasn't happened for that long? Uh, yeah, so this is a really significant trip uh, because it has been so long since uh, Australian, an Australian leader has visited uh, China in, in 2016 and it's part of uh, a thawing of bilateral relations between Australia and China uh, over the last 18 months or so. And so the real um, kind of important turning point was the 2022 federal election. There was this sort of... Um, increasing tension, which also uh, happened at the, the high-level diplomatic level uh, because we had you know, several years where um, leaders were not meeting between uh, China and Australia. Uh, but the 2022 federal election, I think, was uh, China saw an opportunity to try and reset some of those relationships, to try to get the relationship back on into some form of normal or kind of stabilisation of um, of bilateral relations uh, so that, you know, even if there are differences between the two countries in terms of how they approach, you know, certain security issues, um, but there still is this kind of mutual complementarity in it particularly in areas of trade, uh, and that um, the Albanese government was seen as being a bit more open um, to pursuing uh, some of those sort of opportunities and and perhaps getting the relationship back on track. What were your impressions of the meeting and and how it went? Maybe what would have been, I guess, the main point of of conversation or contention? There are really three key issues um, that, that 
the Australian government, I think, were keen to pursue. The first is obviously trade. Uh, so there, you know, there are some ongoing issues that haven't been resolved uh, in in trade, uh, including with things like sanctions of duties, as well as various anti-dumping cases that have been applied from both sides in areas like wine and wind towers. Uh, and so what we've been seeing recently is like a flurry of activity to try to resolve some of these disputes, um, including some recent agreements on lifting duties on barley and wine. Uh, and so I think the part of the focus of this trip will be to continue the progress that's being made on uh, resolving some of those lingering disputes. But of course, there are other uh, areas that, that Australia wanted to raise with, with China, including uh, the detention of writer um, Yang Heng Jun. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we saw the news of Cheng Li's release, uh, the journalist Cheng Li's uh, released from detention uh, after, you know, several years of being detained. I think there's, you know, hope that, um, that Australia will continue to press the issue uh, for other writers and activists who are being detained in China. And then there's also some of these lingering security concerns that uh, perhaps Australia and China don't really share too similar perceptions on. But um, I imagine that um, the Albanese government may continue to express some of its concerns about um, areas such as the South China Sea, uh, which, you know, China continues to take quite an assertive stance um, in that particular domain. So I think there are, you know, some of the, the kind of critical issues that we should be looking out for. As I said, trade is really the, the big game here, you know, in whether it's wine or food, agriculture, or whether it's resources or whether it's services like education. This is the messaging that has been coming out about this visit is that this is where, you know, the bilateral relationship should be really focused. But then there is also um, a sense in which um, the Albanese government recognises the importance of China as a regional actor. That was Dr Beck Strating, Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations and Director of La Trobe Asia, ending the report. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. Over the last weekend, the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia had its annual conference in Adelaide, with more than 300 attendees from different community media across Australia. The Roadmap 2033, launched in October, aims to keep the sector sustainable over the next 10 years. Minister for Communications Michelle Rowland made address at the conference and National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso spoke with her after the presentation, asking how she envisions our sector in the future. I think this puts community broadcasting on a really good trajectory in a time when we are concerned about diversity where the need to have broad media diversity is well known across Australian society. I think more and more people are tuning into community radio as a trusted source of information. The aspects of localism as well um, can't be ignored. I think that people are looking towards more local news as those news deserts emerge on the commercial side. More and more people are turning to community radio 
as not only an alternative, but probably um, as a first port of call. And I think that that is a, a good thing to see for people to be discovering community radio. And uh, we know that right across the country, the hundreds and hundreds of stations uh, that are supported by uh, volunteers are ones that are delivering on their mission. Um, I think there is there continues to be a role for government, as I outlined with the sustainability review, but also in terms of funding. But as Minister, I do see a real challenge here to promote the sector a lot more. Um, amongst my colleagues, um, I try to demonstrate that through my visits to community stations by prioritising um, community broadcasting for giving interviews. And there are a lot of colleagues who do take this up, but I do set myself a challenge to be able to promote this even more. This is an area um, where I think there is great opportunity to be uh, delivering messages, particularly in regional Australia and particularly to specific cohorts because community broadcasting has um, quite a niche number of areas as well where you can target messages and they are multi-platform as well. Um, as I see it, they've been very innovative getting on different platforms, making sure that that news gets out um, in a variety of formats. So I'll continue to do that as Minister, as well as progressing the sustainability review and meeting our election commitments. One of those challenges you illustrated during your speech was saying that the current level of funding does not lend itself to long-term sustainability of the sector. What do you mean by that, its impact, and what does your government intend doing about that? I think there are two things in here. Firstly, it is enabling certainty and it is enabling the realisation of immediate needs. But in terms of long-term sustainability, as part of that ecosystem, we know that there are constraints on community broadcasting for sponsorship and other methods for raising funds. We want to make sure that uh, community radio does have uh, the ability to become more self-sustaining. It does need to be done in the context of their licence conditions, but I think there is much more um, that can be done here um, to enhance awareness, to encourage greater sponsorship. And again, as we turn more and more towards localism and as news deserts emerge in other forms of media, community radio really does have an opportunity here. So there is a huge role for government, um, for the department, for the regulator, but also for me as minister to promote this um, even more. And uh, I think the ongoing sustainability review, it's not a set and forget task. It's looking at the challenges as they emerge and also how we can work collaboratively with the sector. And to that end, I'm actually really grateful to the sector for producing this roadmap. I think we're very much aligned, understanding that there are limitations, but also great opportunities for further sustainability. They will evolve and change over time, but we can't be as an industry, we can't be a government that stands still in this area. Some of it may require regulatory intervention. That's what I alluded to um, in my opening remarks this morning, but we will always work in consultation with the sector to make that happen. Volunteers are that one more one more volunteers are the heart and soul of the sector, yet you say that the reliance on volunteers may be unsustainable. I mean, they are the quintessence of community radio. Without them, essentially, there is no community radio. You're absolutely right, but I think we also need to be alive to the fact that right around Australia, in different sectors, volunteers, um, unfortunately, are, are getting either older or we're in a society now where the labour market means that people can move beyond volunteerism into other areas. I think that this is a challenge that we need to be alive to in the sector. Um, 
we do rely so much on volunteers, how much can we rely on them into the future uh, as people um, become more professionalised and are seeking um, different roles. I want to acknowledge and make no mistake, um, this doesn't detract in any way from the importance of volunteers and community radio, but we need to, again, this is not a set and forget task and uh, we can't just take this for granted. Um, we have to work at it. Minister for Communications Michelle Rowland there, speaking with National Radio News' Frank Bonacorso. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries where this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.